This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is made possible by Arroya, a comprehensive cannabis production platform for commercial growers. If you are a commercial cannabis grower, you can use Arroya to level up your production workflow. Featuring a combination of precision instruments and powerful software that help you intelligently cultivate, dry, and process cannabis, the Arroya Cannabis Production Platform is your ticket to greater yields and consistent quality. Request a quote today online at arroya.io. That's A-R-O-Y-A dot I-O. Hi, I'm Kara Woodstock, culture editor at Gondrepreneur and host of our YouTube show, Fresh Cut. The best way to understand cannabis business is to speak directly to those who work within it. And Fresh Cut was created to shine recognition on the people who fill these roles. In this interview series, we focus on those with their hands in the dirt, both literally and figuratively, from cultivators to bud tenders, educators to advocates, activists to lobbyists. We aim to illuminate the workers who keep this industry thriving. Enjoy one-on-one conversations with me and guests by watching along on the Ganjapreneur YouTube channel and follow our social channels to keep up with the latest episodes. Have a great day. there. I'm your host, TG Brandfault, and thank you for listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of Gondrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I am joined by Keith Stevenson. He is the founder and owner of Oakland, California-based Purple Heart, uh, the nation's first Black-owned cannabis business and Oakland's longest-running cannabis retailer, uh, which has served the Bay Area for 15 years, but unfortunately was among the cannabis shops targeted by thieves during last year's unrest in the city. Uh, Purple Heart and Stevenson uh, were featured in Gondrepreneur's March Report, Oakland's longest-running dispensaries still recovering from last year's crime spree. I am really, really delighted uh, to have Keith on the show. We got to talk a little bit, uh, you know, for that interview, um, and there was a lot more uh, that didn't really make it to print that, that I think that that the Keith story uh, needs to include. So, so here he is. How are you doing, Keith? Absolutely phenomenal, Tim. And equally as important as how I'm doing is how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, it's a it's a really delight uh, to to have you on the show. I really enjoyed interviewing you uh, for our article uh, back in March. Uh, but but you know, people got to know a little bit about sort of uh, you know just just sort of the got to scratch the surface of your story. Uh, so why don't you sort of fill in the gaps and and tell me about uh, your background and how you ended up in the cannabis space? Yeah. Well, you know, my my background is. Uh, Professionally, I was an aviation maintenance technician for 17 years for one of the top two airlines in the industry. And uh, with that being said, I also had a pre-existing juvenile form of arthritis, which that uh, was intimately involved in my life growing up. So that's how I became uh, intimately involved with cannabis. 
And, 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 you know, you t we talked a bit about, you know, for the article about your first sort of uh, jobs in the space. Uh, tell me about your early experience in California's uh, medical cannabis industry. Yeah, uh, my first experience uh, uh, professionally being involved was working with the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Co-op, which was a uh, retailer and a provider of medical cards in the city of Oakland. And from there, uh, I also worked at some of the grassroots organizations, you know, like operating the phone banks and just early, uh, early adapter work in the space, which allowed me to learn more about the industry uh, and realize that this is something that I wanted to be involved in early on. And, you know, when I say early on, we, you know, we're speaking like 1996, 97, 96, somewhere around there. And and you started, you know, you said you started the phone banks and, and you started, you know, at the at the the, the club. Um, you know, what did you learn from those early days that eventually uh, led to you being able to start a successful, you know, your, your own successful uh, dispensary? Uh, what I learned is that this was, you know, working in the industry was something that I truly loved. Like, I really felt fulfilled. And it, it didn't appear to be a job to me. It was a labor of love. And from that, you know, just being around the plant and having spent some time and, and, you know, gardening and trying to hone my craft and just seeing that this was an industry that I liked. So this was, you know, it was, it was something innate. It, it, it touched me and it allowed me to interface with other individuals who had some sort of uh, ailment that they were treating with the use of cannabis. So that's one of the things that really, you know, brought me in. Could you talk to me a little bit about, I mean, you have this, this, this you know, uh, you, you are the first black owned uh, cannabis business in the United States. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, your early days or, or even your, your experience now in, in what is a still, you know, white dominated industry? Yeah, you know, early on, I, I, I say that while, you know, other operators had, you know, jumped into the space and, you know, I wanted to jump in. However, this was at a time when, the Justice Department was really, you know, very uh, intensified towards the medical cannabis industry. So, you know, I just, I, I just didn't have the ability to hop into this space as an unlicensed operator like some of my other white peers were. And, you know, the, the difference now and then is that right now you have a larger group of individuals who've never really interfaced with medical cannabis patients. So right now we have a market that's in California, at least, is more uh, recreational, adult recreational, recreationally involved. So, you know, when I initially started, there were many patients that we would provide cannabis for that succumb to their injuries. And that's one of the bigger differences that we, uh, that I see. And also the, the large uh, or well-financed uh, companies that, that are coming into this space. So 
you know, it, it's we're really at a point where I, the industry is emerging, and you know, this is the advent of commercial cannabis sales that we're seeing. And and one of the things that I was really surprised to learn about when when we spoke uh, for for that article was was that you played a really pivotal role in Oakland's uh, social equity licensing process. The city was the first in the state to roll those out. Uh, tell me about you know that that process and what your role was in in developing uh, what has become really a standard for every cannabis program uh, that 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 comes online. Yeah, so, you know, initially I was involved in the industry and, you know, there just weren't many uh, people of color in the space, you know, in terms of being authoritatively and financially binded to companies. You know, the positions that were typically, you know, you'd see uh, people of color in were typically positions of security, you know, to, you know, mitigate the threat. And I, I, you know, I, I knew me myself, I was capable of doing this. And, you know, what we have is, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about retail sales. And while some folks wanted to make it seem more than what it was, it's just really, it was really business. You know, kids, you operate a business. And there are many uh, people of color that operate successful businesses. However, you know, the way I viewed the local regulations at the time at the city level, that some of these individuals had, you know, that would be qualified to enter into the space, just would not be able to based off of how the regulations were written because of, you know, growing up in an area that was targeted by the war on drugs. And, you know, I I just felt like as a collective group, we would never get to the place of opportunity. So I communicated with two council members uh, back in about 2008 or 2009 about working to change this. And, you know, I was just saying, hey, you know what? These, the way it's written, these individuals that would have a record of, you know, they may have been arrested for cannabis, drug sales or whatever, that they would not be allowed to operating to this space. So, you know, it was something that early on, they were like, yeah, you know, we can see it. And it, it took, you know, like a decade, you know, it took 10 years for this to come to fruition. So my position was early on, I was a thought leader. And then right before the city uh, rolled out the program, I was really uh, intricately involved in the language to make sure that they had a, you know, that these individuals that grew up in these areas that were heavily targeted by law enforcement for drug sales would have an opportunity. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I shared with others in the industry and I've always communicated like, listen, if you really think growing up in the inner city is, is, is always easy I would surely exchange your Hampton experience or whatever lifestyle that you dealt with in exchange for growing up in, you know, urban America. I, me, myself, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. However, I, I've, I've traveled enough to know that it's, it, this was a systemic issue. It's not just 
you know, regulated to the area that I grew up in. So that was, you know, that's really what it was. It was about. It was about giving other opportunity, giving opportunity to other individuals that were, you know, lived in these envir- environments that were targeted for the war on drugs. And you, you, you make a good point when you, when you, you know, call yourself a thought leader, and I, I think that that that's almost sort of an underrated characterization. You have operated in and lived through, I mean, basically the entire life of California's, uh, you know, go from sort of the gray market to the medical market, licensed medical market, uh, to the retail market. Can can you sort of tell me about the the the, the challenges that that each of the transition into each of those markets uh, you faced as an operator? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the gray market is what I would, I would experience. I would call it prior to the 215 market. And that was just, you know, like, Hey, California cannabis is really good, you know, and back then it was, it was really good. And by me having a pre-existing, pre-existing condition, that was really about having continuous and, and daily pain. I don't think anyone knows what it's like to have pain all the time. And I think that's how the opioid abuse has come into play because as humans, we deal with pain and then we, we, we wanna find a source of comfort. And for many, that source of comfort was you know opioids that were uh, prescription based. However, for me, I realized cannabis made me feel good a long time ago. However, I operated in a safety sensitive position. And, you know, even to this day, workers that operate in safety sensitive positions cannot consume cannabis or CBD. So for me, it was, it was like, Hey, you know, what do you really want? And, you know, for me, it was like, I want a quality of life. So now we matriculate into the 215 era and my physician recommends cannabis because the physician cannot prescribe cannabis, but he recommends cannabis. And I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, this is great. Now I can go to the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Co-op and I'm like, okay, you know what? They're hiring. So I'm going to take a part-time job here. However, the stress of going to work at a facility, and this was a part-time job, and going to a facility that's on the list of the Justice Department or DEA is not an easy thing to do. And then you realize, you know what? I have to work in this industry because I'm not the only one who feels like this. And you know, while there were others that were more pro-recreational cannabis, I didn't, you know, I didn't have the ability to really think in that in that frame of mind because I'm dealing with a pre-existing condition, and by the time I'm 26 years old, I've had both hips replaced. Wow! And, and you know, I, I'm I'm I have range of motion issues, and you know, my posture is changing, and you know, and I I, I go from being six feet tall to like five ten, and I'm you know like my my spine is compressing. So I'm consuming cannabis and cannabis is alleviating the constant pain. And it, it's allowing me to go into a, a, a more of a, a recreational mode. So with that, it worked out. And, you know, I started cultivating around that time 
However, you know, it, it became better being able to cultivate and having some some protections from the local police department in the city of Oakland being a cannabis patient. So from there, just, you know, going to the hydroponic store and seeing it become more and more crowded and then, you know, realizing, okay, I've got to pivot. So pivoting into the recreational space was uh, just, it, it was natural. However, it didn't happen easy. You know, it, it, this opportunity occurred because in my spiritual sense, how I'm communicating is that the universe wanted me to play a part in this industry. And I spent a lot of time going to Oakland City Council meetings, communicating to staff afterwards, like, hey, you know, we need more, uh, more cannabis uh, dispensaries because the initial first four dispensaries that they were licensed, I wanted to have one of those. However, during that, that process, I had to have emergency surgery. I had diverticulitis and, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, like I, you know, I, I, this is what I want to do. So I had to back out of it. And then I get in the industry, I become a retailer. Things don't happen overnight. You know, I'm, I'm losing, uh, my, my burn rate was very high. It was like 132,000 for the first three months. And, you know, we're, this is a, this is at a time where, I was cultivating at home. So I had saved, you know, a pretty large amount, like 75 pounds of cannabis to start the dispensary. And, you know, had I not done that, I don't know what would have happened. So, you know, everything that I've learned previously up and, you know, from the time of my inception of dealing with licensed cannabis and moving towards the time frame of 2017, that's when I first interfaced with the new regulators that were um, put together by Governor Jerry Brown to open or to start the Bureau of Cannabis Control. And, you know, some of the individuals were from the Alcohol Beverage Control Department in the state of California. So they had experience of dealing with uh, a regulated inebriation uh, product. However, they knew nothing about cannabis. So, you know, through the, through the years, I think it was 14 years of my experience, I communicated with them, you know, the things that I had worked on, processes that, that the Purple Heart team had developed. And, you know, we just poured into them because we wanted this framework to mirror what was right by the licensed industry standards. And, you know, just, just to go back, when, when I talk about the first Black-owned cannabis business, and we're like the number four licensed cannabis business in America, you know, it's about being licensed. You know, I didn't have the authority. I didn't, well, I, didn't, I had the authority, but I didn't have the protection of going into this without being legally licensed. So, you know, there, there are other operators that were operating and then they became licensed. But what I wish to say is that I am the first licensed Black-owned cannabis business in America and the number four license in the country, period. 
So my experience and what I've given to the industry is one of is, is one of love. So as we move into this newly regulated market, uh, me being able to interface with the officials, uh, Lori Ajax and Dean Grafilo, and you know, some of them have gone on to be lobbyists, some have gone on to work for other corporations. It allowed me to communicate what we found to be our best practices. And some of these, uh, some of the things were adopted into the state regulations, such as at one time I was working on a hydroponic line of products before my mom took ill, but that allowed me to go into the efficacy of finding out what's in the hydroponic nutrients. And, you know, we were moving towards a zero to low heavy metal analysis. So these are the things that were brought into California regulations. And, you know, you have things like, you know, when you use a sulfur burner, when you're cultivating and the bio, you know, sulfur burner is, is used to mitigate powdery mildew on, on, on vegetables and plants. However, it was never, you, it was ne it was never meant to be used on plants that would later be combustible, meaning, you know, that we were lighting them and that lighting the, the residue from the, the sulfur burner turned into a carcinogen once, once lit. So, you know, these are, there was just a lot of things that uh, myself and uh, operators in the city of Oakland learned about testing cannabis and mold spores and, you know, all these things. And initially, I was not someone that welcomed testing. You know, I thought I, 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 I used to refer to it as the easy bake oven theory. And I just thought it was something that the city wanted that someone was in their ear to make us spend more money on this service. And, you know, I, I found that, you know, there were so many things that were on this cannabis, you know, it was like, yeah. Excuse me for a second. Are these the sort of things that, that you discuss uh, in your role uh, on the Cannabis Advisory Committee as well? This was, these are things that I discussed prior to. And this okay. is how I, I uh, received the opportunity to be appointed to the Advisory Commission. You know, so these, these were things that, you know, we were doing locally. And I wasn't the first uh, operator to do it. However, we developed a standard that was so high that the city of Berkeley adapted our standards for their uh, medical cannabis dispensaries. So, you know, it was just, it was just, you know, something that I wasn't actually accepting of because, you know, in business, you know, you're looking at top line revenue, <clears throat> overhead, and, you know, how do we become not only successful, but profitable. And, you know, no one wants to run a business where, you, where it's, you know, your, 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 your finances are tight. So, <clears throat> however, it allowed us to set this standard, but because me being a, a, a black business owner in the cannabis space, I couldn't promote what we were doing publicly because I had to, you know, I, I, I had to take a, a seat and just kind of like be quiet about it. However, you know, when you have a Richard Lee from Oaksterdam, founder of Oaksterdam University and, you know, well-known, <clears throat> you know, one of the well-known 
individuals that was really pushing the industry towards adult recreational cannabis, and you have a Steve D'Angelo from Harborside, it makes it easy for you to kind of fall, uh, not, I wouldn't say fall, but you know, they, those are big figures. <clears throat> so it allowed me to maintain my anonymity. However, you know, when you're a first mover in this space, you know, it seems like the, the, reward, the reward you get are 280E audits. And, and, and so, I mean, we, we can certainly talk about some of these, 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 um, I, I guess, administrative, uh, that, that's not giving them enough credit problems, but, but I want to ask you really quickly, what do you attribute your longevity in this industry? I mean, you know, having covered this, this, uh, space since 2014, you know, I see businesses and people come and go, um, you know, even some of the people who are, you know, riding high for five or six years, you know, then they blow up spectacularly. Um, how, how do you last this long? Well, for one, I, I, I think that there are three things that you have to have in the modern cannabis space. You have to have knowledge of the industry. You have to have uh, financial or fiscal responsibility. And you have to love what you're doing. You know, no, no one really has anything that's different, you know, product wise. So, you know, you have to be able to deliver exceptional customer care and service and and to be able to know the nuances of the industry you know the buying patterns the sales you know you you know sales tend to go up at certain parts of the year and they tend to go down at certain parts of the year so you know your financial forecasting has to be on point and you always have to have the ability to to mitigate your exposure you know it's it's a very um <clears throat> costly business, business, you know, a lot of times you see multi, you know, MSOs, multi-state operators coming to the space, they raise a lot of money and then they go bust. And, you know, part of it is believing that, you know, once you're going to get in the space that everything happens, you know, just to, to your, to your favor. And that's not the case. You know, it goes back to what I was telling you about me starting in this business there being very limited competition and I'm still losing, you know, my, my negative burn rates, 132,000 a month, you know, for the first three or four months. And, you know, it's like, how do you mitigate that? And I think that, you know, my history is that I've encountered many turbulent periods of this emerging industry and not, not being afraid, not folding, but really sticking to the script that I feel and I believe that I know this industry better than anyone. Now, whether I know it better than anyone or not is what I believe. I believe on, on my, intimate, you know, my intimate knowledge, my preparation for the space, and how do I prepare myself in 2016 to be here in 2026 and understanding that you know, all the things that I've been through how do I not allow them to impact me? And, you know, when I say me, I, me is synonymous with the business. So, you know, there's just, there, there are a lot of things, you know, I don't, I didn't come into this space with, with, you know, billions of dollars. I do believe that the opportunity to be uh, financially successful is equally 
as important as as being philanthropically successful. You know, it's it's a lot of a lot of operators in the industry may really feel that who makes the most money is the biggest winner. However, how impact how positively impactful have you been in this space? And you know, there are so many things that we could chart our growth by, but ultimately, you know, for me, it's about how many people have you assisted in getting into the space? How many brands have you helped break into the space? How, you know, when it comes to policy, why, you know, policy involvement, where have you been? I've, I've been, you know, I've been involved in the city of Oakland's uh, policy early on where I sat on the Measure Z Council, which is now the Oakland, the Oakland Cannabis Commission which is like a precursor to what I do at the state level for California. And it's really me being someone from the industry and me offering my, my greatest advice as to how this industry can move forward and grow, not in a manner that's beneficial for me, but for the entire industry. Well, and so, so, you know, you discussed uh, your challenges and in our piece uh, that we published in March, we discussed, you know, the ransacking of your shop at length um, with the riots that were happening sort of under the guise of, uh, you know, the, the, the protests that were occurring. These are separate incidents, obviously, um, you know, you, you had described it as, you know, organized crime. It was planned on, on Twitter. Um, but what we don't really go into in that story is, is the depth into some of the other fallout, uh, such as the insurance problems that you faced and, and the issues with metric uh, that you experienced in the days and the weeks of following the event. Can you, can you talk about sort of those issues uh, and, and whether or not they, they've been fully resolved? Sure. So, yeah, you know, we, we did sustain two burglaries after temporarily closing to become COVID compliant. Like, you know, when I say COVID compliant, I mean, building sneeze guards, uh, acquiring the right disinfectants that we can use that are, you know, not only safe for our facility, but allows us to counter COVID and any other uh, sickness or, you know, issues that are happening there. Uh, so, you know, working with the insurance company has been, this has probably been my first foray into being upset with an insurer, you know, and you, you realize you paid years of, of insurance to protect the business and you've never filed a claim. And then when you filed a claim, it's like they, you know, they, they they make it more arduous than what it has to be. And, you know, you realize that when after talking with your legal counsel, you know, I was told the only way to insure makes money is by paying you less money than what they owe you. And then you start to realize, well, this is why so much of our citizenry doesn't like insurance companies, because, you know, you have a need to be covered financially. And you have a need to have whatever other harm that happened to be taken care of. But the under the underlying connected connectivity is the finances. And I I feel that you know based on my experiences, um, I want every I want all the operators in the industry to know. You know, there's there's no there's no reward in over insuring your business for more than what 
you can receive. And what I mean by that, if the business is only going to keep $200,000 in merchandise at the facility, there's no, there's no need to pay for a policy that allows you $500,000 in coverage when you're not going to have it. And, you know, then you, you, you start realizing how the adjuster, the insurance company, how they all work together. So now you, 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 you're, you're attempting to find a solution and then you realize that this is just capitalism where, you know, capitalism is about making money, but, you know, my thing has always been capitalism with the consciousness and, you know, giving back to the community. However, when you're dealing with level business at this point, and you're, you know, the, the, the numbers are large, what they have to pay you, you know, what I've been told is that the insurers are just, you know, they'll just put you in a position to say, can you afford to litigate this case? And if you can, they'll try to get the case kicked out of court. And if they can't get it kicked out of court, as you start progressing towards trial, then that's when they, you know, the insurers start to communicate uh, with you in a manner that, you know, they, they want to resolve this. They want to settle this. But it's, it's, a, it's an arduous turn. And I, I, I just, I wish for the best for me and my industry peers. Do you, do you think that sort of the response from your incident, incident specifically uh, has to do with the fact that you are a cannabis business and, and there may be a little bit of bias there? And You know, I, that's, that's difficult for me to say. I just think that regardless, it, you know, I, 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 I can say that may, you know, that may be an inference. You know, it, it, it could be inferred that that may be it. However, I also feel that, you know, insurers just, you know, they don't want to pay if, if they have the ability to uh, remove themselves out of any sort of uh, policy covers, they will. So, you know, you had mentioned, you know, that, that um, you know, you, you, you have this capitalism with a conscience and, and you've donated to many community organizations, including Urban Services, YMCA, Oakland School of the Arts, the Oakland Police Officers Association and the Covenant House of California, among others. Um, what role sort of by and large do you think that cannabis businesses should have uh, in community building? I, I think that, you know, as stakeholders to the community, we have to be in compliance with the community and the community should be in compliance with us. And what I mean by that is if a cannabis business is operating in a, a uh, residential community, then you have to be uh, accepting and, and accountable to conversations to hear the community's uh, position. And I also think that if a community moves into a commercial district that has become habitated by cannabis businesses, then that community should also put themselves in a position to have to acquiesce because one, you know, I presented two, two situations that are similar, but different. And some communities are residential, residentially oriented, and others are commercially oriented. And if you move into either districts, you should, you know, you should realize that, me being a stakeholder means that I'm accountable to my, to my neighbors, regardless of what they do. You know, just last couple of weeks ago, I went to a, a facility and I mean, this place, it, it, it just, it, it, 
it was in, there was an intense cannabis smell emanating from the facility in a residential area. And, you know, how, how, you know, how does one mitigate that? You know, it's like, I can tell you, I like cannabis. However, the strong smell of freshly, you know, cannabis in its final weeks of ripening and being trimmed can be rancid to some. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, we, we New York, we obviously just sort of uh, moved into it. But anytime I, I read about sort of what people describe cannabis as, when I lived in Florida, I remember the smell of the trop of the burning orange peels at the Tropicana plant, mm-hmm. and and that's sort of what I think about it. You know, if I'm not somebody who really likes the smell of citrus, so so to your point, I mean, you know, what do you think operators could do better in that regard? Well, I, I think that the operators are doing exactly what they planned on doing. However, I think that that's a more of a municipal issue, and the mun- and municipalities have to have an understanding of what they are permitting. You know, now for the residents of that community, I don't think they could be upset at the operators that are cultivating, processing cannabis, or anything like that. I think that as a as a as a uh, citizen of that community, I think they, they have to voice their issue if they even have an issue. I just found it very loud to be two blocks away and approaching this facility and just like, you know, like, wow, this is, this is pretty loud. Now, could I live in that environment? It, it, it may be difficult. I mean, you know, I, I cultivated, I cultivated cannabis at home and, you know, it was fine with me because it was my cannabis. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, again, you know, just like our conversation uh, for, for the print article, you know, we, we again, just barely get to scratch the service with you, Keith. Um, okay, in, our, in the final minutes here, could you tell me what your, I mean, 30 years in this industry, it's, it's literally a lifetime uh, for, for lesser men and lesser businesses. Um, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who seek to be in this space for 30 years? One, make sure that you love what you're doing. And, you know, so many operators come into the industry because they look at it as a, a gravy train with meatball wheels. And, you know, I, I understand if you have to, if you want to do something for a financial gain to, to allow you the uh, affordability of a quality of life that you might not have right now. However, what makes you happy? So if cannabis makes you happy, you have ideas of doing things your way, try it. You know, make sure that you are able to be involved and learn as much as you can about the industry and make sure that the folks that you're interfacing with are who they say they are and that they have the experience that they're stating to you. Because, you know, at this point, I know cannabis is such a young industry as 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 we move into the legality of it. And there are many individuals who, who, you know, everyone's a subject matter expert. However, you know, this is the only industry where uh, the disbarred attorney or the mortgage broker who you, you know, who created fraudulent loans can come into this space and say that they are subject matter experts. So, you know, do your due diligence, find out what part of the industry you want to be in and find out, you know, if you're in a state where 
the opportunity tends to be uh, not as easy that you, you know, that you consider going to a state that, you know, it's a lot easier. You know, I've, I've spoke to an individual yesterday in the city of Oakland who, you know, wants to do it here, but they feel like the California regulation and taxes are, 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 are buried entry. So they want to go to um, Oklahoma and, you know, I, I'm fine with that. And, you know, just really have an infrastructure, have sound legal advice and have, you know, have some, some um, involvement in the industry where you can reach out to communicate with those in the space that have been doing some things. And, you know, and if you have to pay for professional advice, then, you know, be willing to do so. I, I really enjoy uh, the, the, being able to have these conversations with you, uh, you know, sort of back to back, you know, I, I, I really feel like um, I, I've got to to know you a little bit uh, over over these these couple of, you know, between interviewing you for the print article and and I really appreciate you taking the time, both then and now to to tell your story and and, you know, offer your your decades of experience uh, to to our listeners. Um, where can people find out uh, more about Keith Stevenson and Purple Heart? Uh, you can, you know, right now, I would say just just Google Keith Stevenson. Uh, you know, definitely Google Keith Stevenson and, and support my GoFundMe campaign that, that I've launched. And, you know, uh, as, as we're in a process of rebuilding and opening, you can go to uh, purpleheartpc.com and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start, um, providing more information on there. You know, you could follow me on clubhouse at purple heart underscore Keith and, you know, just really just, just, you know, find, uh, you know, just Google me and continue to listen to you, Tim. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's awesome for you to, uh, share your time and your platform with me. And I, I greatly appreciate it. So the the just so our listeners are aware, the GoFundMe is a uh, it's it's in response to uh, the the ransacking the the burglary robbery uh, of your dispensary uh, last summer or your 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 retail establishment. Could you uh, tell people uh, the how how they can find that GoFundMe? Yeah, it's Keith. Uh, it's at GoFundMe. It says help Keith Stevenson rebuild his life. And the reason that I chose to put help me rebuild my life is because the cannabis space is one of those unique spaces where right now no one wants to shake your hand professionally, you know, when it comes to uh, financial institutions. And they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll kick you out of a bank and they'll, they'll shut down your platform. So I've had to personalize the personalize this this crowdfunding opportunity by saying help Keith Stevenson is if I say anything about purple heart, it's going to, it's going to be shut down. So it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, 
Keith Stevenson, he is the founder and owner of Oakland, California-based Purple Heart, the nation's first Black-owned cannabis business and Oakland's longest-running cannabis retailer. Keith, thank you so, so much for being on the show. I, I really wish you the best of luck uh, and, and as you reopen uh, and get back on your feet. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that the next time we talk, it's, it's about reopening the doors to Purple Heart. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Appreciate you, Tim. Thank you. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com on Spotify and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. I've been your host, TG Brandfault. <laughs>